0: Welcome to Clarity Fun Podcast. I'm Dr. Owen Anderson, and I've finished a series on anxiety, philosophical anxiety, or existential anxiety, looking at what it is, why we can call this an age of anxiety, which is the inner life of the age of skepticism, and then looking at some philosophers. And I'm changing now to a new series, which is called The Death of the Academy, And you might think, well, that sounds very morbid. I don't know about that. But it follows from this previous discussion about the age of skepticism. And it may be, I guess, in one sense, morbid. Maybe it's a a good month of the year to uh, think about these kinds of things. People get out their skulls and they uh, hold it up and they talk to old Yorick, who was full of infinite jest. And they remember things like that. So I might say, well, that's a, that's a good time of year then, I suppose, to talk about the death of the academy. But I'm, I'm not doing it just for that reason. I'm doing it because the consequence of skepticism is uh, death in the form of meaninglessness, boredom, and guilt. And, and that's why we looked at anxiety, how anxiety, the philosophical type, there's other types which we weren't diagnosing, but the philosophical type deals with uh the consequences of meaninglessness or it's the felt consequence of meaninglessness we want to have meaning in our life and so here at the at the academy level we're looking at the the death of an institution what happens when an institution no longer provides meaning and so i'm going to get into this in a few ways anticipating questions and one question is uh, what are you talking about, Dr. Anderson? Although some, maybe some smaller schools have a hard time financially, large schools are doing very well for themselves. There are schools with that have there billions of dollars of endowment. There are schools that have hundreds of thousands of students. So I don't know what you can say the death of the academy. Maybe you could talk about some specific institutions, but otherwise you're being too general. You're being too broad. Uh, well, I'm not talking about the academy in terms of individual schools. Yes, individual schools can and do continue. I'm thinking about it in terms of the mission of the academy, all the way back to when it was founded by Plato, and why uh, perhaps there were other times like this, but why this is, as an age of skepticism, also an age in which the academy uh, is dead. And, and so it's not particular schools the, that, that a school that we call the academy is thriving now doesn't actually affect my argument because it might be that it isn't actually doing the work of the academy. It could actually be, be a, a plus for my argument. It could support my argument because it'll say, yes, it's thriving because it isn't doing what the academy is supposed to do. So the work of the academy is left dead there. And this other work, which is very popular and and makes a lot of money, is being taken up instead, which goes to prove the point the Academy is dead. So that's one piece of it. Another piece of it is this. I'm going to be thinking about the image of Cicero, the Roman statesman, Roman philosopher, and his teaching in the ruins of the Academy. I used this as an analogy in my book, Faith and Reason at Early Princeton, To have that picture of the the change from the early academy, when it was vibrant, to the time of Cicero, where he's teaching in the ruins of the academy. I use that image then to ask about what happened to Princeton. Princeton coming out of the first great awakening with the values of piety and the knowledge of God, down to the present, where it has completely forsaken those values, no longer teaches those. And so in that sense, it's dead. Those values have died. Now you might say, yes, but something else much more successful has been put in its place. Look how well it's doing financially or uh, in terms of certain kinds of research. Okay, so that's not the kind of thing I'm talking about. I'm talking about what happened to those earlier values, whether it's at Princeton and using Princeton as a representation of the American Academy. How do we get to the beginning of the American Academy, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, many others, to the present state? where it would make no sense to ask a student who's applying to go to that university, are you applying to go to learn piety and the knowledge of God? Uh, They probably wouldn't know what that even means. They'd say, of course not. That's not why I'm going there at all. So what happened? And and there's an image of that. This isn't the first time it's happening. That's why I use that image of Cicero. There he is in the ruins of the academy. The academy having been destroyed by the general Sulla. And he made sure when he conquered Athens that it was destroyed. And there's Cicero in the ruins trying to continue that tradition. Perhaps it's fallen on hard times, he might say, but we can revive it and get it going again. Now, that's not what I'm proposing that we do. I'm going to suggest there's a reason why we ended up in the current condition. It's a consequence of skepticism, which has been there in latent form from the beginning. And so, whereas Cicero might want to revive it, might want to pick up those pieces and continue, it. and he could say, look, yeah, we're on hard times now, but things will get better. I'm going to make a case that, well, we came on those hard times because of skepticism, because of the failure to articulate the knowledge of God. Now, Princeton, in that sense, is in a different position because they began affirming that knowledge of God, and that, and that it was available both from the works of creation and the works of redemption. And so then we have to ask, well, what happened? How did that Slip out of its grasp. How did it go from from those high aspirations to the present condition, where those aren't even on the radar? Well, that's what I'm talking about—the death of the academy, and thinking of the American academy, but really going back to the academy in the beginning. What would what was Plato uh, trying to do? So let's start there, and then we'll, we'll have a number of installments. This is only episode one of this series. We're going to have many more. We're going to look at specific thinkers. But today we want to just look at the idea of the academy, beginning with Plato and his ideas of knowledge, the idea that uh, really will summarize it in the picture he gives in the Republic, book seven of that cave dweller, that person in the cave who sees the shadows on the wall. And as he, he escapes, he's, he's chained, he's bound with five chains the five senses. And the world of the senses is just the world of shadows, not reality. Appearances, but not reality. And as he he escapes from those five chains and he goes out of the cave and there he's able to gaze on the world as it is in itself to see reality and not only appearance of things. And this is the image of Plato's theory of knowledge. Knowledge In knowing, we want to get to what is permanent, what is lasting. And nothing in this world is like that. Nothing in this world is is unchangeable, and nothing in this world is is, uh, perfect. A triangle in this world isn't actually a perfect triangle. Only the idea of a triangle is the eternal, perfect, unchanging triangle. And so the goal of knowledge is to go beyond the senses to the forms of things, to reality in itself. And this world of senses is always incomplete and imperfect. Now Aristotle will offer a a variation to that and start his own school. I'm starting with Plato because we, we come down to us, we still use that term, the academy, and because Aristotle's variation is still within the same kind of thing. It still accepts that Greek dualism that I just articulated between the world of change and the world of permanence. So Plato's theory of knowledge, how do we come to have knowledge? And the purpose of the academy is to come to have knowledge. And one of the main disciplines, or the main discipline that gets us that kind of knowledge, is mathematics. Which is why it is rumored to have said over the doorway of the academy, let none who enter here, or or only enter here, those who love geometry. Geometry getting us to those perfect eternal forms. The shapes of things that are unchanging. Unchanging. Now, this has a few features we want to notice. First, this world of change must be set aside. It doesn't get us to reality. We get to reality by leaving this world and going to the next world, the next life. Now, this might be done in this life through pure contemplation, but that's why you get the picture of the philosopher as someone who doesn't have a a day job, who doesn't do useful things because he retires from the business of this life, to just do pure contemplation as a kind of foreshadowing of what the afterlife will be like. Ultimately, the afterlife frees you from the bounds of this life, and there you're able to perceive directly, directly gaze on reality in itself. Now, some Christians adopting this model will add God in there. See, then you get to gaze directly on God. But it continues the same problem, which is that you get to reality apart from this world. This world's a distraction, it's incomplete, always changing, and the highest goal is to leave the body and their gaze directly on reality itself. All right, so we have that built into the academy from the beginning, which will bring, we'll look at variations of that, changes to that, we'll look at the, the uh, uh, enlightenment response to Plato, but for now, uh, keeping in mind this idea of Plato and his theory of knowledge, and this world, and how that led to a skepticism about this world. And that skepticism would lead to the death of the academy. What good is the academy? What use does it do? What meaning does it provide? And that's really what we want out of the academy. Out of learning, out of teachers, teaching, discipling, mentoring, we want meaning. Does the platonic system provide us with meaning? Now, meaning can have different meanings. All right, so meaning might mean purpose what is the purpose of a thing, but it it could also mean something like the cognitive content of a belief. Does this have any meaning? And that sense of meaning, or that meaning of meaning, is prior to the, the, the other one, what purpose does it have? So when I ask what is the meaning of it, I'm saying, does this have cognitive content? Does it make sense? Does it hold together? Does it allow us to understand the world? Or does it leave the world unexplained? And you can see how the Platonic system does that. It asks us to flee the world, ultimately, that Greek dualist view of the world. And so in way by way of contrast, we we'll say, well, then, then the academy will not provide us with meaning. People will look elsewhere. There will be no problem for General Sulla to destroy it. He won't see it as having any meaning and therefore of having no purpose. Now, by way of contrast to that, I want to turn to Acts, the book of Acts, chapter 17. Because we're going to contrast the Apostle Paul with Plato. And this Christian responds to the Greek academy, starting in verse 16. Paul, waiting for his friends in Athens, was greatly distressed to see the city was full of idols. Now, Athens is the city of wisdom. How could the city of wisdom be filled with idols? The most wise people self-professed, and yet they're idolaters. So he went to the synagogue and reasoned there, both with Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. And it says a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Now, that's interesting. I mentioned Cicero. Cicero just before this, but he is locked in that debate as well. Usually he is representing the Stoics, although he's a little bit different than the Stoics, uh, and he's debating with the Epicureans. Or he's moderating a debate between an Epicurean and a Stoic. But philosophy and the academy had uh, so degenerated to be just a debate between these two views. The Epicureans saying only matter and space exist, atoms in the void. When you're dead, you're dead. And so you should just enjoy yourself in the meantime. And the Stoics arguing for an an eternal cycle. All things have already happened and will happen again. And so you have to resign yourself. And so they're arguing, those two positions. And that's what had become of the academy. That's all there was that was left. Now it says of these philosophers, uh, they began to debate with Paul, and some of them asked him, what is this, or, or some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. So they said this to Paul. They said this because Paul is preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So is Jesus just another one of these gods to add to the the pile of idols? So they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. And then it says in verse 21, All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. And so here we have the Contemporary Academy. All the uh, all those in the Contemporary Academy who live there in the academy spend their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. They go to the latest conferences and have panels that debate the latest ideas. And then they go out to lunch and dinner afterwards and talk more about the latest ideas. And they go and look at the newest books that have been published on the latest ideas. And they get the newest journal articles about the latest ideas. And they spend their time... Look at look at this! How emphatic it is! Their time doing nothing, but talking about it and listening to the latest ideas, and so that isn't a picture of vibrant. This is what's interesting. You might say, look how vibrant Athens is, a- 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 the Athenians are, and Athens is. They're all just paying their time doing this, but in fact, it's a picture of deadness. They're stuck in the debate. They they have, and here's why they haven't understood the the assumptions behind. On the one hand, Epicureanism. On the other hand, Stoicism. And it's a very similar debate to what the academy's stuck in now. And so they're stuck there, and, and consequently all they can do is debate the latest ideas. They don't make any progress. There isn't actually life. What appears to be life is a kind of death because there's a kind of meaninglessness. That whole activity is meaningless. What good does it get them? Now let's see how Paul interjects. I think he's different than Cicero. He doesn't stand teaching in the ruins of the academy Waiting for better days. Let's look at what Paul does, starting in verse 22. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I have not found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown god. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. So this is fascinating, right? They had all these idols, and then to cover their bases in case they forgot someone... They had an idol titled the unknown God. Well, should this God have been unknown? That's going to turn out to be their problem. What they think is unknown and maybe unknowable, they should have known. And because of that, they're culpably ignorant. And he's going to proclaim that to them. And so he says this, starting in verse 24, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands, by human hands. Right? So if God created all things, he doesn't live in a building in the things that he created. He existed before that. So verse 24 begins with this assertion, only God has existed from eternity. Nothing else has existed from eternity. And all other things were made by God. And therefore, the way of worshiping God is not uh, made by humans. God will tell humans how to worship him. All that in just verse 24, and he goes on then in 25, and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Right? So it's not as if God needs uh, something like you, you offer a bowl, and he gets a little stronger because he needs this uh, offering. And, and that's how the Greek gods may have been portrayed. They need human worship. It makes them stronger or makes them feel good about themselves. Maybe they're insecure. They need to be told that they're a really good god. But God, the creator, is not like that at all, of course. He doesn't need anything made by humans. He created all the things there are. And so then he gets into that creation here in verse 26. From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times and history and the boundaries of their lands. So all the nations are made from one man. They're all related in that sense. Well, why did God make different ones? Well, he did this in verse 27, so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him though he is not far from any one of us. And then he quotes here from one of their own, from one of their own philosophers. He says, uh, for in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. So God, in in verse 28, God is the solution to the problems the Athenians were stuck on. They, They like to debate these three things. What is it? To be alive. What makes something that's alive different from something that's not alive? To be animated. And motion. What is motion? How does it start? Is motion from eternity or did it have a beginning? And being. What is it to be? And how is being different than becoming? Well, Paul says, God explains all of these things. And we are his offspring. Now, in the case of the Greek gods, sometimes that was physical offspring, right? Zeus would have a baby with a, a human woman. Uh, clearly does not what that means here because God isn't of the world, he made the world. So God is not bodied, whereas offspring in the sense of being created by God. All humans are created by God. There's not different people groups like the this group was created by that God, this group over there was created by a different God. One God from eternity who created humans. And so then in 29, he draws a conclusion. You can see this from the word therefore. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or an image made by human design and skill, right? God created those things. He's not one of those things. And so if you were to make a statue out of one of those things and say, look, that's what it is, including a statue that looks like a human, right? The Greek gods might be made to look like humans, but God doesn't look like a human. He created humans, let alone fish or cows or birds, And it says, interestingly, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. There's a a new call to repentance, beginning with the the opening lines of the gospel, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And that's going out to all nations, which it hadn't done before. All nations repent for the uh, kingdom of God is at hand. And, And these philosophers are being called to repent of their culpable ignorance about God. Although they may have looked down on the the crude idols of the common people, they themselves, as either Epicureans or Stoics, had failed to know what is eternal. They had said either the material world is eternal or it's in an eternal cycle, and they hadn't known God. And so they're called to repent by the Apostle Paul. And 31, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. So there will be a day of judgment by the man he's appointed. And and this is Christ. Because then he says he's raised him from the dead. So now in verse 31, in that one sentence, he affirms God's rule in the world in more than one way. Because you might think, well, that's just the future just judgment. He's talking about there in the beginning of 31. But also he's talking about the rule of God in natural evil, old age, sickness, and death. Because here we have him raising him from the dead. All persons die. For the Apostle Paul, he would have said death came into the world in Genesis chapter 3 as a callback from moral evil. This is part of God's rule in the world, imposing natural evil on the world. So that when Jesus overcame moral evil, he also overcame natural evil. There's no, no need for natural evil as a callback if there's no moral evil. And so he didn't stay dead. He was raised from the dead. So that's the proof that moral evil has been overcome and, and, and the Apostle Paul has called them to repent of their moral evil, which is this culpable ignorance of what they call the unknown God who is knowable this whole time. And yet they exchanged the eternal power of God for things made by their own hands. Now, it says this in 32, when he heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. So he gets a mixed response. You can't can't say, if it's a good speech, everyone will love it. No, it doesn't follow. It might be a great speech, and you get a mixed response. They heard it, and they they sneer. The resurrection of the dead. What is this babbler talking about? But others want to hear him again. So think about this now. Back to our topic. The academy. Paul doesn't come in and say, I'm going to pick it aside. I pick the Epicureans. No, no, no. I pick the Stoics. And here's why they're better. I'll do a Christian version of Stoicism. No, he doesn't even engage them on that. He sets that whole debate aside because it's, it's built on the wrong foundation. It's presuppositions are false. It's, it's a false dichotomy. The academy has got itself stuck. And what he does instead is he proposes an alternative foundation, beginning with this teaching in verse 22, or sorry, 24. God, the creator, God alone is eternal. And God created everything else, which is the basis for the clarity of general revelation. All the works of God reveal God. That includes this. The creation had a beginning, is temporal. Humans had a beginning, are temporal. And he gets into both of those here in 24, 25, 26. The creation reveals God. God alone is eternal. And that's the place to start and that was available to them the whole time that's what is there in the clear general revelation of god but they set that aside for their own idols and so their academy died the death of the academy in idolatry and nothing had changed although again cicero was just before this in history but nothing had changed for cicero to ever think it would be revived and worth reviving it's not revived at that level if it has these false foundations Instead, we need to put in place the correct foundation, and the correct foundation starts with what is clear to reason about God and man and good and evil. That's the correct foundation to begin building the academy. The death of the academy shows us that it hadn't been built on that foundation. The foundation was broken, and when the storm came, the building fell over. And to catch all that metaphor for the academy the, the academy didn't provide us with meaning and we need meaning we still need meaning and so a school that provides us with job training although that's very beneficial and helpful is not the same as the academy the academy was going to help us not simply with getting job training a degree that helps us get a job it was going to help us find meaning to understand the world to make sense of the world and when it didn't do that it died and people, after a while, don't want to keep it around. They say, yeah, that thing doesn't do anything for us anymore. Let's clear it out. It's taking up too much space and replace it with something that does provide us with meaning. And that's the consequence of an age of skepticism. People don't stop in the age of skepticism. They still want meaning. They still want knowledge. And that's where we're at. And that's why I'm going to do this series. I'm going to look at different philosophers, actually probably some different disciplines, theology, history, philosophy, literature, and see how each can show us something about the death of the academy in our time. And then relying on the Apostle Paul as our example, replace that with uh, understanding the meaning of the world in light of what it says about uh, God, the knowledge of God. General revelation, what is clear from the things that are made about God, so that unbelief is without excuse. That will provide meaning and provide the life that people want. Life in terms of full of meaning and wonder. So thanks for joining me in this first installment on the death of the academy.